Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 76, Mark Spotswood, Toward a Continuous Burden of Proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Mark Spotswood. Mark is Associate Professor at Florida State University College of Law. He teaches evidence, civil procedure, and scientific evidence, and his scholarship focuses on evidence and proof. Our podcast today features Mark's new article, Toward a Continuous Burden of Proof. In it, Mark examines a basic question to our process of proof. Conventionally, proof in the legal system is dichotomous. If the fact finder is convinced beyond some threshold, whether preponderance, clear and convincing, or beyond a reasonable doubt, then the fact finder imposes full liability on the defendant. If the fact finder is not, then there's no liability. Mark argues that this dichotomous or discontinuous approach is rooted in principles that we no longer accept, and that therefore a continuous burden of proof may be a more appropriate modern system. So, as a simple example, if the jury is 50% convinced of the plaintiff's claim, then the defendant should pay half. Is this proposal ill-advised? Perhaps. Unrealistic? Maybe. But regardless of your initial skepticism, Get ready for an intriguing discussion that will make you question some of your most basic intuitions about how legal proof works. I'm confident that Mark is going to make you think about legal proof in ways that you have not before. Mark, delighted to have you back on the Excited Utterance podcast. Welcome. Uh, Thanks, Ed. It's great to be back on my favorite podcast. I think our listeners are pretty much all familiar with the way that burden of proof traditionally works. Plaintiffs have a threshold, like the preponderance of the evidence, and then if the plaintiffs meet the threshold, then they win, and if they don't, they lose. You, however, would like to think of a burden of proof that is not binary or dichotomous in this way, but rather continuous. Tell us more about what you mean by a continuous burden of proof. Right. So... In general, when we're talking about burdens of proofs, what we're actually dealing with is just a function, right? It's a a transformation of some varying level of confidence that a deciding judge or a deciding jury might have to, you know, a level of consequences. And we don't normally think of them as functions, but the one we're talking about when we do the sort of ordinary implementation of burdens of proof looks like a step function. It's sort of, you know, the light's off, there's zero punishment up until some threshold, and then we flip the switch and we suddenly get everything. But when you start to think of them as functions, you can map the confidence onto consequences in an arbitrarily large number of ways. The idea of the continuous burden of proof is there's a lot of benefits we get from instead of flipping the light switch from off to on, treating it like a dimmer switch. As the confidence level escalates, the amount of damages in a civil case or the amount of uh, sentence length of a a prison or something like that in a criminal case are steadily going to rise along with the confidence. And that's, I think, the idea of the dimmer makes it pretty intuitive how that's basically going to work. It always increases monotonically. Once you decide to do that, of course, it doesn't 
need to increase linearly. You could use many different functions to increase it. And a big part of the paper is devoted to exploring the different ways we could do this increase to balance different concerns we might have about the trial process. I have to say that that was one of the coolest aspects of the paper to me, which is that once you leave this discontinuous burden of proof, the step function, you offer the linear function, but then you start to say, well, you know, those of us who are more empirically inclined, we're more familiar with this logistic function. So the logistic function, often seen in logistic regression, is something that is flat. So it's approximately no recovery for some period of time. And then it starts to slope up and become somewhat linear toward the point of the 50%. So you don't have this discontinuity. And then it levels off at the one. The thing is, is that so you can choose any function you want, right? Anything between step to linear to anything in the logistic. Mm -hmm. Is there any sense of what function might be optimal? So how do we choose what function we want if we're going to have a continuous burden of proof? You know, I don't think it's something we can get at just with mathematics. We have to weigh complicated questions of what our values are, what our priorities are with respect to the trial process. So in large part, this paper was inspired by me rereading a great old paper by David Kay, where he is exploring two different kinds of burdens of proof rule that an early version of a continuous burden was actually suggested by people in the law and econ literatures on the grounds that it's good for deterrence for there to be some consequences at every level of confidence. And his paper was devoted to showing the expected error cost, the total magnitude of error you get in favor of either party or against either party is higher under that rule than if we use the discontinuous step function. The reason I'm nudged towards logistic burdens is I see the trial process as inevitably involving balancing competing values. I don't think we can just have our cake, eat it too, have, never have to worry about trade-offs. In particular, I think his article neatly showed we are facing a trade-off between deterrence and error costs. And I take that to heart. The thing I like about the logistic burden initially is it allows us to strike a balance, to not maximize one at the expense of the other. And then it really it refers us back to a question of our values. How much are we willing to tolerate errors in particular cases in order to improve incentives on ex-ante conduct? How much does our abhorrence of convicting the wrong person mean we're willing to accept lower deterrence levels? But unless you think we want to go all the way to either extreme, the logistic burden just ends up making the most sense. It's certainly not the only function you could use that has these properties, but it's easy to express mathematically, and it's pretty easy to solve for a variety of shapes it can take that respect the basic intuitions, right? That if we're halfway confident, there should be about half the level of punishment. If we're very certain, you should get almost all of it. If we're very uncertain, you should get almost none of it. And it should be symmetric around the middle. You can even think of, from an implementation standpoint, the logistic function is a little complicated. People don't necessarily understand it all that well. You can almost think of a two-step function where if you're 50%, you actually get half. Mm -hmm. That, I think, in some ways, you hint at this toward the end of your paper as well. I would assume that also would be acceptable to you as a middle ground. Yeah. One way to approximate a movement towards a linear burden or depending on the arrangement and the length of the steps, a logistic burden or any other one, is to do a series of steps in the limit. Obviously, they just can become a continuous function. And you're right. It has benefits in terms of being 
maybe a bit more legible, a bit more understandable to judges and juries. They don't have to know the math that produces this. It just looks like a schedule. Part of what motivates me in writing this paper, though, is a distrust of the way proof works near discontinuities. One of my sections, I explore a few things that happen as we get close to discontinuities. They tend to magnify other sorts of problems we're often concerned about in the proof process. So in the normal rule, right, where we go from all to nothing, if you take a juror who's 48% confident and you nudge them towards being 52% confident by something we don't necessarily like, right? Really good advocacy because one party had better resources and they could hire a better lawyer or the effects of implicit racial bias or something like that. I doubt those effects normally move us from very low confidence to very high confidence. I suspect they're small nudges, but small nudges can change everything near a discontinuity. And if we were to do what you're talking about, that series of steps, I'm not thrilled with the idea of it being just three steps or something like that. I would want them to be a lot of levels. And the reason is the more of those levels we have, the closer we get to the continuous function, the more we moderate the impact of biases. And it also just promotes equal treatment. I don't see a big difference in any practical sense between a case where a jury has 49% confidence and 51% confidence. You'd have to get a whole lot of very similarly situated defendants in a room before you would detect any difference in expected outcomes based on those two states of confidence. But the way we treat them is radically different, and we tolerate very large errors near discontinuities because of that with respect to particular parties. So I like the idea of smoothing out our distribution of errors, too. And the closer we get to a continuous burden, the more we're going to tend to achieve that as well. Let me switch a little bit from policy arguments for the continuous burden to Mm -hmm. the more historical arguments that you also make in the paper. You argue in the paper that effectively these dichotomous burdens of proof are somewhat archaic in a way. Can you say more about why they're archaic and not in keeping with more modern thinking. The farther you go back in the history of the common law justice system, the more you find a kind of collection of ideas that made sense as a logical grouping, but they're just mostly things we no longer hold to be true. The jury came into its existence at a time when most of the ways people resolve disputes involved trying to get a very clear dichotomous signal of which party should prevail, usually by invoking some means that you could say was revealing God's will, like the ordeal, like the outcome of a a judicial duel, other things like that. And so first of all, they lived in a world where it just seemed obvious that when two people dispute, one of them is just in the right and one of them's in the wrong. The idea of splitting the difference was foreign to their imagination. Acknowledging that people often make mistakes when they investigate facts puts them at a severe disadvantage versus divinely revealed truth. So early on, judges worked pretty hard to project this impression that juries just know what happened. It's not a question of confidence levels. It's if the jury gets an outcome wrong in a case, it would be assumed and indeed treated as if the jury had committed a felonious wrong. The writ of a taint could be used to punish civil juries uh, quite severely if judges later uh, used a mechanism to decide the jury had reached what they found to be a false verdict. In criminal cases, they could hold jurors in contempt. In some periods, they would refer to them for punishment via the court of Sar Chamber. It was treated as essentially perjury for a jury to get a result wrong because the assumption is they know the answer. 
But we've walked that back. We now don't punish juries for reaching wrong results. A whole host of other doctrines that treated the outcomes of cases as essentially determinate based on proof rather than you know, a, a question of confidence and something where we always acknowledge a possibility of error, we've walked very far in that direction. But we have never gone back and fundamentally reconsidered, should the outcomes just be flipped like a switch as if we had that perfect confidence? Because that's really what we're doing with a dichotomous burden. We're treating it as once we reach a certain threshold, we will act as if we're certain. And that's where I think our current practices have grown out of alignment with our values or our other beliefs about the trial process. I think this story is very interesting because I'm somewhat of two minds about it. On the one hand, it rings true because to me, it feels a lot like the debates over comparative negligence. Traditionally, we had this idea that one person or one party was at fault and you couldn't divvy it up in the way that we do in most jurisdictions today. So I can in many ways see that modern thinking opens things up to greater uncertainty or a shared burden in terms of fault. On the other hand, I have to say that I'm often a bit skeptical of claims that people in the past were naive or couldn't see uncertainty. And the reason why I think this is just because people don't quantify or acknowledge uncertainty doesn't mean that they don't feel it. Mm -hmm. So how should we think about that? Is it really more like the comparative negligence angle, or is it that we're ascribing motivations to people in the past that might not really be there, that they, they were choosing the dichotomous rule because there was something natural about it? If you think about it, if you make a decision— it's usually a binary decision. Something is either true or it's not. And you may have some uncertainty about it, but you're going to either go with it as if it were 100% or go with it as if it were zero. Yeah, so it's a fascinating question and one I don't think has a, an all or nothing answer. So in the style in which I'll answer your question, I'm also going to kind of go with the general preference of my theory. So I don't think it's all or nothing, but I do think there's a qualitative difference in the way people approach this question in the past. To some extent, this may have been a legal fiction. And there's certainly, you can find evidence in historical sources that judges understood that sometimes what a jury said wouldn't be the truth, but they more often dealt with that mentally by thinking of it as a kind of nullification, that you don't like the outcome the law is going to provide here, so you're going to shade your answer so that someone who would be treated as a murderer won't receive execution because you think the other guy deserved their fate or something like that. Although there is an acknowledgement that verdicts can be wrong, it's often channeled in a different direction, right? It's often drawn into a different way in which the problem might be manifesting. And I think that's connected with a real change that's occurred in the way we generally think and have discourse. If you look at scholastic medieval thought, there was a much bigger emphasis on the idea that important questions might be resolved with logical proofs and a much lower weight given to we need to go out and we need to collect evidence on a question and acknowledge that the more evidence we collect, we might reach a better result. So in general, there are ideas we treat as just so obvious that we really do inherit from the scientific revolution and the enlightenment that we don't even notice sometimes that you might just not notice 
how tenuous most conclusions were. And you can definitely trace, uh, Barbara Shapiro has done a nice job of this, language that starts off in John Locke, David Hume, or the Enlightenment philosophers thinking about problems of inference, start to infect evidence treatises and they start to infect courts. And before the 1700s, you don't really see a concept of an epistemic burden of proof. Judges aren't telling juries, here's how confident you should be before you reach a decision. They just say, you should decide what happened, right? And it, they might have acknowledged that sometimes you might be wrong, and even sometimes that you're going to be wrong because of true epistemic uncertainty, but they rarely said it out loud, and they focused a lot more on jurors uh, making sure that their consciences were satisfied with their result. You know what happened, but make sure you're doing your moral duty. And until this period in the 1700s, you see a lot less emphasis on the idea that you could have doubts and still need to convict someone, that you're not going to be perfectly sure of your result. Maybe some of this was a legal fiction, but I don't think we should jump too readily to the conclusion that what's obvious to us now has always been obvious. I think we really have improved our understanding of how reasoning works, how inference works. And that's trickled down now to such a degree that it can seem like, didn't everyone always know that? But you can search pretty far before you see evidence of that in early cases or early authorities. There's been a lot of debate lately about what the nature of proof is. Ron Allen and Mike Pardo have talked a lot about abductive reasoning, which is effectively the story model, inference to the best explanation. And on the other pole of this debate are the Bayesians who really want to think about things in terms of probability. How does your move to the continuous burden of proof shed light on that debate? Is it favoring one side or the other? I think it doesn't have to be. I think definitely part of what motivated Ron in his early papers was a set of concerns about probabilistic modes of reasoning in the judicial process. And so there can be a tendency to associate inference to the best explanation or that side of the debate can go under as just being anti-quantification. But they don't have to be. There is a pretty substantial literature in epistemology of people saying, I think, you know, in the end, inference to the best explanation and Bayesian reasoning are fundamentally compatible. They're aimed at the same end, making sure our beliefs match reality and the concerns you can address in one frame you might go about it in a different way, but the, be the more you're approaching the ideal of either mode of inference, the more you're going to reach the same result via different mechanisms. So with that said, I think there's a through line in a lot of my work saying it's an interesting debate, but it rarely has huge practical consequences for operating the judicial process. And this paper is a good example of that, right? Because most of the reasons why it's nice to have a continuous burden don't depend on calling those shades of belief or shades of confidence credences that are in the Bayesian sense, right? It's just, I feel increasingly confident that this is the person the law should punish versus I feel less confident. And whenever we treat that question in a dichotomous way, we're going to see the problems we have with the dichotomous burden of proof. One thing I like in Ron and Mike's recent work is they're more and more acknowledging that you can't just do a horse race of pure comparison and the stronger theory always wins. That doesn't align with the judicial process. We have to be able to talk in a qualitative way about the strength of stories on their own, uh, or we can't make sense of things like proof beyond a reasonable doubt. 
So once you've gone that far, I don't think it's hard to say, well, let's put it on a Likert scale. Let's say from zero to 10, how much stronger is the better party story than the weaker party story? And you can never talk once about subjective probability or any of those things, but you can get a pretty continuous scale and you can use that to sort your outcomes in a way that has almost all the benefits I'm talking about in this paper. I think it probably has all the benefits. It's just not a way it's been talked about on that side of the literature because they weren't trying to solve the problems I'm trying to solve in this paper. Let's talk a little bit about potential disadvantages. And here I think I see two. One, and you talk about these in your paper as well, one disadvantage is a concern about naked statistical proof. One of the objections traditionally behind the blue bus problem is awarding, say, 60% damages based on a 60% level of certainty kind of loses a certain moral oomph to a verdict. The other, I think, might be one of compromise verdicts. So if we agree that a 60% outcome is okay, then you might have a situation where four jurors out of 10 want nothing and six jurors out of 10 want 100%. And then what they do is they just give the 60%, which may not be something we want either. Responses to these? Yeah, so let me start with the second one. There's a very interesting question about how you should pool multiple different people's confidence levels. And if you're really attached to the notion of the unanimous jury and you're used to a dichotomous rule, it can seem like the only fair or sensible way that the system can work is to have them all deliberate until they somehow all reach the same confidence level judgment. And that seems impractically hard. I mean, and I think in terms of them all internally holding the same mental state that they report in terms of their credence, I don't know how we'd ever determine that that was true. In terms of getting jurors to say the same level of confidence, I'm fairly certain you're right that bargaining is going to occur. I'm not sure that's A, that different than what we're doing now, right? There's very good evidence that initial disagreements among jury members almost always cash out in terms of what the initial majority of the jury would have voted for when polled. I think whether they are just going along for the sake of being able to go home or whether social pressure towards epistemic conformity is really strong, holdouts mostly give in. So you're talking about a similar thing when you say eight people vote guilty, four people vote not guilty, and they talk for a while, and in the end, they all vote guilty. It's not clear why we should privilege so much their confidence levels after this deliberation process versus their confidence levels at the start and say that means they all fundamentally agree versus they were sort of talked into going along with it. And I think when we talk about varying levels of probabilistic confidence, you know, yes, there's going to be someone says 80 and someone says 40. And maybe the sensible thing to do is to say, well, both of those people know I'm not a perfect reasoner, right? My own backgrounds, my beliefs, my biases, maybe nudging me higher or nudging me lower. A benefit of the jury is we're pooling those backgrounds to reach a conclusion. And so some process by which they work together to reach a kind of average result is probably more epistemically defensible in the end than saying if we can't all fundamentally agree on the number, there's something going wrong. I don't necessarily see anything intrinsically problematic about that idea that juries make deals. 
So that's the answer to the second question. As far as the first, I spent some time in the paper trying to unpack this notion of what is the nature of this sort of moral discomfort we have with basing judgment in a case on something that says, here's my confidence level, and thus acknowledges that it might be wrong. And one of the challenges is giving content to that discomfort. Like, what is the reason? Because it might be sometimes we have intuitions that are just wrong. They don't make sense. They're based on this is what we're used to, this is what feels good, but it's not necessarily best for the system or the world to trust our guts all the time. So there's various kind of arguments, some about treating the accused fairly, some about the deterrence the system can give to people outside the system who might not take probabilistic judgments as seriously. But as soon as you start to talk about these things, you inevitably get back to there's trade-offs to be made. So if we are worried that it's somehow disrespectful or rude to an accused defendant to say, I'm going to put you in jail because my confidence level is 0.9, and that acknowledges that there's a 10% chance of not convicting you, I think you face two fundamental challenges if you you want to say, we can't do that because of our moral discomfort. The first is, the accused may very well already recognize that. There's increasingly a lot of awareness in the general public consciousness that we have a wrongful convictions problem, that this is something that arises, that it's not unimaginable. They can think of examples themselves. And of course, among the subset of people who are innocent defendants who are being convicted, it will be perfectly obvious that the system is capable of convicting them wrongfully. So acting as if we're certain about a judgment that's prone to error just makes the system look like it's not taking its own fallibility seriously. And there's also, I mean, I have a lot of trouble going along with arguments that say, out of our concern for someone's dignity, we should lie to them. And I fundamentally do think acting as if proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof to a a level of certainty, that's a lie. We know that's a lie. Depending on how you want to approach the question, if you just ask people what their level of confidence is, that that would mean they say someone's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, you're going to get answers clustering in that zone of 0.8 to 0.9 from judges and jurors. And in fact, if you look at the level where people's pre-reported confidence will correlate with a decision to convict, it seems in some studies to be even lower, right? It might be closer to 0.7 than it is to 0.85. So it's one out of three people going to jail would be innocent. That would be your expectation under that level of epistemic confidence. Treating that as certainty is, I think, fundamentally dishonest. I think it's the fairest way of respecting someone's dignity is first and foremost to treat them truthfully. And I do think the continuous burden or any approach that acknowledges that convictions are potentially uncertain better passes uh, that kind of moral test for me because it acknowledges our fallibility and it is transparent about the fact that we have to operate a criminal justice system even though we're never going to be able to be certain about guilt. Well, Mark, thanks for raising this conceptual question of discontinuous versus continuous burdens of proof. It has certainly made me think much more deeply about why we do what we do. Great having you on the show. It's wonderful to be back. Thanks. Let's be clear. Do I think that the legal system is ready for a continuous burden of proof? Absolutely not. But the point of legal scholarship is sometimes to make us think conceptually about the alternatives. And here, I think, is where Mark's scholarship often shines. 
Thinking about the burden of proof as a mathematical step function converting levels of confidence to particular outcomes is remarkably illuminating. And thinking about alternatives to that step function is even more so. Mark's logistic function is a natural candidate, but there are endless possibilities beyond that. In the interview, we talked about multi-step functions, but we can also talk about functions for which the midpoint in confidence doesn't equate to half recovery. There's a notion out there that mere preponderance, being slightly more certain than not, is not enough to recover. So you can imagine a logistic curve that is shifted over to reflect that bias toward the status quo. I also have questions about settlement, which we unfortunately didn't have time to explore in the interview. For one thing, settlement is de facto a continuous burden of proof. Better cases settle for more than worse ones. Settlement data is not easy to come by, but assuming that we had settlement data, what function might settlements follow? And here's another question about settlement. How would a continuous burden of proof affect settlement rates? Without the risk of an all-or-nothing outcome and the accompanying psychological effects, how will litigants behave? Finally, I think it's worth re-emphasizing my discussion with Mark about whether continuous burdens are desirable as an epistemic as opposed to a policy matter. On the one hand, I do see parallels with comparative negligence. Why trap ourselves in an on-off world when we can see it in shades of gray? But on the other hand, I really do think there is something intuitive about an all-or-nothing approach to facts. Sure, we have uncertainty. Sure, we impose a function to threshold the evidence. But either the light was red or it was green. And maybe what we want out of the legal system is that clarity of pronouncement, even if we know that underneath it all, we're only guessing. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Mm -hmm.